Well, we finally did it. You fooled me. You tricked me. <laughs> it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good trap, I thought. So um, it looks like we achieved a new record on our uh, subreddit there with the uh, comments from last time's episode. Of zero. A fantastic record, a different kind of record of zero. I think we've successfully hit zero many times in the past. Oh, did we? Oh, okay. <laughs> Clearly it was because of the uh, the um, the whole issue of, you know, analog versus digital and vinyl versus CD and all of that. People were just... It's actually everyone was sending in their comments by handwritten letter right with their new fountain pens that they bought after the previous one and they just haven't come in yet that's right i see they've just posted them to reddit and they're hoping somebody on staff will <laughs> you know copy it out for them yeah they're too busy like sort of listening to their bar talk on the wax cylinder <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to to look up and uh, go to the post box and get the uh, get the deliveries oh well how is helsinki yes so uh last week i spent a day in helsinki it's a very interesting place. It's, it's a curious place, Helsinki. Have you ever been there before? No, I haven't. I think that one thing that kind of surprised me is that it's interesting how familiarity works. You know, in here in Sweden, everything is very foreign to me. I've only been here for five months or so, and so everything's still very strange and foreign. Mm. Uh, yet when you go somewhere that's kind of similar but not the same, and uh, you suddenly have something to compare sweden to mm. it, it's it's a very interesting feeling coming back to sweden it just sort of feels like ah oh, here we are everything's i'm back here and everything's comfortable and fine and i understand everything and it's all familiar now yeah even though it's yeah, just yeah. really really foreign so uh helsinki itself it's a curious place because the the history of helsinki of course um sorry the history of uh, finland sweden's involvement with finland i'm not going to try and talk about the history of Finland because I'm not that familiar with it, but I think about, what is it, maybe 700 years? Six, about six or 700 years, Finland, of course, was part of Sweden. Mm. And the cultural and linguistic influence can really be felt when you're in Helsinki because all of the signage is in Finnish and Swedish. Oh, right. Okay. And sometimes English. Right. So it was very peculiar because coming from not being – I have some not basic knowledge of Swedish. Going to Finland, when all the signs are in Finnish and Swedish, mm. it, it's a little bit of a – it's kind of surreal. It's like, where am I? This place looks different. Mm. The people look different. They definitely sound different, the, the, the language that they're speaking. Mm. And yet there's Swedish language everywhere. And – um you know, not it doesn't end at signage either. One thing that I noticed walking around the, the city of Helsinki. So basically I had a, a meeting in the afternoon and then I had an evening flight to catch. So I had the whole afternoon, about four or five hours, just walking around Helsinki area. Mm. And there were maybe three or four shops that I passed that were actually branded something, something, something Stockholm. Hmm. Like, you know, when you when you have like a, you know, for example, like a fashion brand will have right, something and then right. Paris or right. Tokyo or, you know, London or something like that. Right. Um, there were three or four shops that I passed that had some fashion brand or something and then Stockholm written underneath. Well, that's curious. I mean, mm. <laughs> so the uh, seeing Finnish and Swedish next to each other so frequently – you really become aware of how different the two languages are. Yeah. And they are 
you know, they are because they're completely from different branches. Right. Um, Swedish is from like the North Germanic kind of branch together with uh, Norwegian and Danish. Right. And those three language, languages consequently are, are fairly similar. And I mean, you know, it's a similar branch from which English derives as well. So even though they look quite different to English, there's there's a lot that they've got in common. That's right. Um, and yet Finnish comes from, I actually just did a little bit of research before the show, it actually comes from a branch of languages called the Finnic branch. And uh, the there are a number of languages in the Finnic branch of languages, and uh, the two major ones are obviously Finnish and Estonian. Mm. Uh, and there's your geography just across the Baltic Sea from Finland is obviously Estonia. Not the Scandinavian Sea. Yes. The Baltic Sea. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> <laughs> many, many geographic failures last last episode. Let's, but any- let's just leave leave geography aside. For yeah. <laughs> let's. Anyway, so uh, Estonia being the, the most similar language to Finnish, and that they actually do sound very similar. Mm. Uh, yet when you see Finnish and Swedish together so often like that, you're really aware that they're so, so different. And so I understand, you know, that there is the the the, the history of the two countries, and I, you know, I did a little bit of reading just now on Wikipedia, and I encourage anybody who's interested to go and actually have a read through the, the history of Finland and Sweden's involvement in Finland because it is very, mm. very fascinating. But when you're there, you sort of... Come, you find yourself wondering why, what, why, why does this country need Swedish anymore? <laughs> because it's a, you know, they are. I, I believe that uh, in schools, Finnish children are still taught Swedish, mm. and there's Swedish all over the city on signage and and you know um, branding and all of that. Yet they're so different the languages, and you know I think just last year actually I believe Finland celebrated its 100th year of independence. Oh, right. Uh, which is wonderful and fantastic. Uh, you sort of, when you're there, I, I guess uh, I guess to summarize, I, I was expecting it to be more different and more Finnish. <laughs> mm. And yet all of the influences and the historical remnants of the, the era of, that, um, you know, Sweden and Finland were so closely involved together are still so uh, obvious and so uh, on the surface when you're there, that it it was a little bit surreal somehow. Mm. So, yeah, I uh, enjoyed my time there very much and um, the food was nice and the people that I interacted with in shops and this and that were nice and uh, it was a very cold day and I ended up um, down on the uh, coastline uh, looking out over the frozen Estonian Sea somewhere in the fog, there would have been Estonia on the other side of the water. Is, is that as distinct from the Baltic Sea, or are we oh. still on? Are we calling the Baltic Sea whatever we feel like at yeah, the time let, at this point? Let's just let, let's just call it the the, the Alex Sea, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Any sea that Alex sees is the Alex Sea. Yeah, that'll, that'll do. I mean, say we, that ten times fast. Yeah, we, we've committed geographic sacrilege so many times already that we may as well just you know follow through with it all. Anyway, the Finnish thing is is really interesting though. I, I don't know an awful lot about it either, but um the the Uralic family of languages, which I think I think Finnic or Finno-Uralic or Uralophilic or something like that is is a subbranch of of the Uralic um or Uralian family of languages, mm. which is is mostly uh spoken by people up in that neck of the woods, you know, Finland and Estonia. But also Hungarian mm. is a Uralic language. And and it's like weirdly detached from everything else. I mean, if you look at 
a map of where the you know languages that that derive off the Uruk family of languages are spoken. It's all sort of way in the north, in in sort of Finland and also parts of Sweden and Norway, and then further to the east in sort of parts of northern Russia and Siberia and places. Hmm. Um, actually, Siberia may be wrong, but but then like just randomly, way south of that in Hungary, there's there's Hungarian, and I think I'm not totally sure about this, but I think that. Uralic might be an entirely separate family mm. that doesn't derive off Proto-Indo-European either, even. Mm. So, you know, have you heard of Proto-Indo-European? Uh, I know Indo-European languages. That's basically all of the sort of core languages of, you know, Western and Northern Europe, correct? But I'm not sure about Proto-Indo-European. Right. Proto-Indo-European is this, uh, imagined is the wrong word, but let's call it a, a sort of theoretical language that we have no sort of remaining evidence of people having spoken, mm. but it's sort of been reverse engineered by oh. looking at the changes in language in all these different branches, trying to work backwards to a common root. Oh, wow. And so they imagine that this Proto-Indo-European language is the common root from which a lot of these other languages derived and mm. from which, you know, via ancient Greek to something else, via ancient Greek to Latin to French to sort of well you end up with english by a few branches because it's got so many influences but sanskrit is also derived off proto-indo-european right the indo is for the indian region right. so from sanskrit basically all of the indian languages derives uh, but it's this amazing sort of family tree of languages that covers most of india and western europe hmm. but i don't think it includes Finnish or Hungarian or Estonian mm. or any of the other Uralic languages because I think that's actually an entirely distinct tree. Mm. And that's amazing when you think of sort of what a spread of languages are, are related in this way mm. that cover so much ground all the way across the entire of Europe and into India. And, and yet these just these small regions have this completely different and unrelated a family of languages mm. so the, the whole thing is, is extremely interesting yeah language and uh the the history of language and language development is is just endlessly fascinating i mean it's a amazing wonderful kind of phenomenon of of uh human communication and human development i suppose the way that you know we're all essentially saying the same things but just in different order using different words and different sounds and different pronunciation and intonation mm. And the extent to which that actually affects our thought. I mean, we think of language as, as a way to express thought, mm. but thought doesn't exist independently of language. Language informs thought and gives us a structure with which to frame ideas. And if we don't have the language with which to do that, mm. it's actually very difficult to comprehend the idea at all. So there's this very tight connection between language itself and understanding and the things that you're capable of understanding. Yeah, you, you definitely uh, get a sense of that with children because with uh, our children, it's interesting that you can see when something has been labelled with a way to say it in a language, mm. it becomes that much easier to interpret and deal with and process. For example, when a child is experiencing a kind of unusual emotion for the first time 
for example, nervousness. You know, that if if a child, as a child grows up, eventually something like nervousness or jealousy or you know these kind of more more complicated emotions, mm. they start to happen from time to time. But the child doesn't sort of know what's going on. You know, I just feel really strange and mm. unsettled, mm. but I don't really know why. And it's when you're raising a child, it's really really helpful to be able to give them a label for how they're feeling or, or what's going on or an object or, mm. you know, an adjective or whatever or a verb to actually describe something because then it's like that this amorphous abstract concept of, for example, nervousness where they're feeling something, as soon as they have a label for it, then there's boundaries drawn. Oh, this is nervousness, mm-hmm. which means that they can recognize it again and then call it out. I am feeling nervous. Right. And, um, yeah, it is almost like without that label, just as you said just now, it's like without that label and without that descriptor, it's like this very strange, you know, kind of hazy thing that, that's happening to you. Right. Uh, which you can't really get a grasp of. So, yeah, as you said, the, the thoughts and language are, are so closely wound up together. I was just uh, thinking just now, uh, when we're talking about Scandinavian languages there with uh, Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish, mm. uh, some of my Swedish friends have told me that in companies where they work together with Norwegians and Danish people, mm. I'm always curious to ask, well, what language do you speak in that situation? Mm. Do, you, do you speak Norwegian to them or do they speak Swedish to you or how does it work? Right. And the people that I've asked tend to say the same thing. They say, no, when we work with Norwegians, the Norwegians just speak Norwegian and we just speak Swedish. <laughs> and they yeah. they just sort of understand each other. And uh, the Danish sort of stretches out a little bit, slightly slightly different from Norwegian and Swedish, which are more similar. Mm. And, mm. you know, yeah, my friends have said that, uh, yeah, when you work with Danish people, sometimes you kind of have to lean in. <laughs> a bit when they're, when they're talking to sort of kind of get what they're saying. But basically, usually right. in, in a corporate situation, they'll be speaking their native language and we'll be speaking Swedish and everybody, it, like nobody pays any mind to it. It just, you know, just sort of goes right. on like that. And I think that's really cool. It's sort of interesting that the, the languages are, A, the languages are fairly close and B, there's just such a, a tendency for people to understand all of them. It it comes close to dialect at that point, right? It's like, where is the line drawn between a dialect whereby, you know, if if I talk to someone from Australia or America or, or the North of England, for example, they, they, you're all speaking different dialects, but Mm. it's English. And so it's completely mutually intelligible. That's obviously a, a different thing really. But then there's Scots spoken North of the border in Scotland, Mm. which is actually, considered a separate language Mm. and it is i believe taught in some schools Mm. there's poetry written it books written in it and uh, there's wikipedia translation into scots Mm. and but it's and it is different and it has its own rules which work a little bit differently to english Mm. Uh, but you know similar similar enough that it's fairly intelligible. Like I can read the Scots Wikipedia, for example, and understand it. Mm. A lot of the words I don't, I don't actually know. You know, there, there are words in Scots which don't really exist in English, which often come from more sort of Northern European roots. 
but I can work out from the surrounding context and the words that I do know, you know, what they're getting at. So that that is almost a similar situation where, you know, I think in that situation, if you, you know, if you were in a meeting where half the people are, are like extremely Scottish people mm. <laughs> speaking Scots, um, you wouldn't expect them to sort of switch to English necessarily. Right. And, and they certainly wouldn't. <laughs> so yeah. but but again you know i how much of a difference that is it's difficult for me to appreciate how the delta between swedish and norwegian for example compares to the delta between english and scots yeah and the the whole term dialect is blurred so much by different languages because for example mm. as, as you just said technically if a swedish person can talk to a norwegian person and they can talk back in norwegian and the swedish person is speaking swedish and they can understand each other even though they're speaking different languages, mm. technically you would think, well, that's closer to like a dialect. Just like, uh, you know, when, when I talk to an American person, it's, it's kind of, it's a, you know, it, we can kind of understand each other. Kind of. The, most of the time. <laughs> when the, <laughs> but they're, they're sort of, if they can understand each other like that, then, then technically, yes, as you said, maybe that's considered a dialect. But then when you look at Chinese... You know, Chinese has loads of so-called dialects, right? But in the case of Chinese, they're not mutually intelligible. They, they you know, the, the written right. language, the written language remains consistent between them, which is perhaps why it's possible to call them dialects. But mm. they sound completely different. And when you have a Cantonese person talking in Cantonese to somebody from Shanghai talking in Shanghainese, they can't understand each other at all, right? And yet they're called dialects. So I don't know. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's a I don't way. know what the sort of definition is or where the line is drawn, mm. and I don't know for sure whether sort of in academic linguistic circles those are considered dialects because they're called dialects in sort of common language, right? Mm, right. We think of them as dialects, but. Maybe they're not, you know. It, mm. it may be that that these days in academia that they're they're not considered to be dialects, and they are more separate languages. I'm not sure, as you say, the written language is is the same. So, well, if you are a linguist listening to this, then please feel free to uh, comment on our subreddit, Station Thirteen. Please do if you, if you haven't turned it off because you're frustrated with our <laughs> completely being misinformed, or yeah, or our. Incredible tendency to uh, completely mess up geography and uh, anyway. So, Danny, I uh, happened to open up Facebook this evening, which is something I rarely do these days, mm. and um, scroll scroll down a little bit and uh, chanced upon a post from yourself with some fairly fairly controversial news, fairly, a fairly controversial announcement you made there. You want to uh, just tell us about that? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it's controversial, but uh, I, so I am deactivating my Facebook account, Ex which is a, a thing that is distinct from deleting my Facebook account. Right. Uh, so there's there's a few things to sort of talk about and and unpack there. But um, basically, I discovered yesterday that Facebook has the ability to deactivate your account, whereby you know, to all intents and purposes, it's like you've closed your account. Mm -hmm. You're not appearing on people's feeds. You can't post. You can't log in. But 
they keep hold of your data and the account is still kept around so that if you change your mind, you can actually reactivate it, right? And that's that's separate from deleting your account where they actually wipe all your data from the servers. And if you want it back, tough luck, you've deleted it, it's gone. When you deactivate your account, I guess then you don't have access to Facebook Messenger? You know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I actually think that you might... I think I read something uh, about along those lines that you can still access Facebook Messenger with a deactivated account, which is a bit weird. Mm. I will probably delete the app mm. in the spirit of things because the the thing is this... So, so I am deactivating my account as a first step towards potentially deleting it. And I guess the uh, this begs the question, what uh, what prompted this? Right. So, well, there's a few things. We've talked in, before about Facebook's business model and about privacy and a lot of things sort of related to that. So I don't want to go into too much detail on all that. But there's obviously recently been the whole scandal with Cambridge Analytica. Have you been following that at all? No, I haven't. What's what's going on there? Oh, I see. Okay, so it's it's quite big news. Um, Cambridge Analytica is a company that performs research on behalf of mostly conservative political organisations. So in the UK, it's for the sort of Conservative Party and UKIP and that and Brexit and all of that sort mm. of side of things. Here in America, it's on behalf of Republicans and uh, the Trump campaign. Right. They were a big part of the Trump campaign's sort of media strategy mm. uh, during during the last election. And there's I haven't been following this story too closely, but the gist of it is that recently it's been revealed how much data they have on how many people and how they've been they used this data in a manner uh, that is distinct from from what users thought they were going to do so sorry by they do you mean facebook or do you mean cambridge no, i mean cambridge analytica okay right cambridge analytica essentially worked by creating a load of sort of fun quizzes on the internet that get shared around on facebook that you put in your thing and you answer a load of questions and it tells you which harry potter house you're in or whatever right uh of all varying you know all varieties and fairly predictably, they did this as a massive data mining organization mm. rather than as a selfless contribution to people's desire to spend time doing quizzes. Right. Um, and so they, they got a huge amount of data out of all these things. And they used that data to inform these political organizations and to push advertising to certain demographics for political purposes hmm. a lot of uh, video evidence has also come out of you know people from cambridge analytica talking to uh, people representing various campaigns and so forth about their the techniques they're using and how powerful they are and how it all works hmm. and so this this is this has been a, a big sort of controversy hmm. which is controversial but at the same time it feels like it shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone like we all kind of knew that our data was being mined in this way mm. and given the last year or two 
two years, I guess. We've also knew that it was specifically being used for political purposes and not just for advertising. Mm. So it's it's not a big surprise, but it's just another reminder, right? Another time for it to come up in the in the news cycle, right? And another opportunity, which I've mentioned before, for us all as individuals to look at our own usage of social media and Facebook and Twitter and these things mm. and to decide for ourselves what we want to do with them and, and whether we want to continue and how we want to go forward. Mm. And I feel like I should sort of get it on the record quickly that I don't actually necessarily have a problem with Facebook's business model per se. Mm. There are plenty of people on the internet who have said Facebook is an evil company and uh, they don't care about anything but the bottom line and uh, they're, you know, they're selling people out and, and all this. And, you know, different companies have different priorities. It's clear that some tech companies care more about users' privacy than others. Uh, but there are people who work at Facebook, right? I know some people who work at Facebook and some people who used to work there. And the ones that I know have been good people. So I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone who works at Facebook is evil. And I'm not saying that Facebook itself is necessarily evil, right? I actually think the service that it provides is valuable. I've said this before once when I think in a previous episode, I said that I had thought of quitting many times, but hadn't because the service it provides is too valuable to me. Mm. I, I appreciate being able to remain in contact with old friends and people who I've sort of fallen out of touch with and we're not close friends. So I probably wouldn't make the effort to sort of write them an email and keep in touch regularly. But given that they post things and I sort of get it delivered into my newsfeed, I, that small connection remains. I like that. I think that's good. Mm. But I haven't been making much use of it recently. Mm. The last couple of years, much more of my time is spent on Twitter. Mm. I found that I prefer that as a platform. Twitter is naturally public facing. And so everything that I post there is kind of intended for the public. Right. I don't post private photos or information about my relatives or where I've been living and things like that, which, you know, I have posted on Facebook. Right. So I've shifted towards using Twitter and away from using Facebook. I rarely really look at Facebook these days. So I'm getting less of that benefit than I used to. Mm. And more and more of these stories are coming out. So for me, personally, the equation has shifted a little bit. And mm. I'm starting to feel, okay, maybe for me, it's not worth it anymore. And maybe I should consider leaving it behind. Because my circumstances have changed. And because Facebook has changed as well in the way that Facebook is being used and the way that it's being exploited by companies like Cambridge Analytica. Mm. You know, what they've done was, was not a hack. It wasn't a breach. They didn't break into their systems. They did what Facebook allows them to do, right? Mm. But Facebook imagined that when it was sending its users' data to people, that that data would be used for advertising. And they evidently didn't imagine that it would be used for sort of underhand political manipulation mm. purposes which it seems to have been used for so you know there's there's a lot of blame to go around and you can you can throw it all at facebook if you like i think there's there, there is a degree to which they just didn't expect this mm. maybe they should have maybe they shouldn't but it's not really my problem like <laughs> mm. i all i can do is make a personal choice about whether it's right for me and and right now i feel like 
it's worth giving it a go, right? Mm. Because they've got this deactivation function, it's worth my while to try out deleting my account for a bit. And I can always change my mind if I decide to. Unless I actually, you know, after a few weeks, I may decide I haven't missed this at all. I might as well just delete it. Mm -hmm. Because until I do that, of course, it's not actually worth much, right? I'm still leaving all my data on their servers and they're still free to use it to send to advertisers Mm. and and people. So I haven't actually achieved all that much by deactivating the account. This is mostly a a personal exploration, Mm. explorative kind of thing, right? So I think if I really do want to... So I'm almost getting the worst of both worlds by doing this, right? Because I don't get access to the services of Facebook, but I don't get any of the advantages of not having my data on file. Uh, so I think, I think one way or the other, I will have to commit in the end either to reactivate my account or to delete it. Right. But I like the fact that I can sort of give it a trial run. Hmm. Well, I support your decision. I would also love to do the same to deactivate or delete my Facebook account because I just don't really enjoy Facebook very much, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. You know, when I- well, I mean, that's that's another part of it is that I think for some people, again, this is all very personal, and so I'm not trying to push people to close their accounts or anything like that at all. Really, all, all I want, all I would encourage people to do if I'm going to encourage them to do anything, mm. is just to take some time to think about what they're doing and just decide like is this for me is it not if it's if it is then great if you're getting value out of it then good it's Mm. good that you know you're getting value out of a service but it's just worth spending time because there's a you know there is a point where you're almost you feel like you you have to engage with these things i was reading an article recently where uh yeah the younger generation these days people who are sort of in their late teens early 20s right now who've grown up with all these services, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all that, there's much more of a feeling of like, almost like a responsibility. Like they they have to like and comment on each other's posts. Mm. And if somebody posts, especially girls, if, if they upload a, a photo of themselves and within five minutes, they don't have like hundreds of comments saying, oh, you're so beautiful, that looks amazing sort of thing then it's like a personal, it, it's, it really affects them personally. And, and if they notice that a particular friend of theirs didn't comment or their boyfriend didn't comment quickly enough or something like that, uh, then it's like a personal slight against them <laughs> and, and, and actually representative of like, people do choose to rescind their likes as part of feuds, right? <laughs> they, they, I mean, it's, this is all very sort of, this is maybe getting more towards the middle school sort of age, not the early 20s probably right but like you know that this is a way that that people interact now that you know there were different ways that people expressed their displeasure as teenagers before this is not a a new thing for teenagers to be mean to each other right but this is you know this is a a very real thing now that people feel duty bound to engage with these services i i would count myself into that group as well i um i like you, uh, like I was just saying, I I don't get any enjoyment out of it. I don't. Uh, Twitter, on the other hand, also like you, I, I find that I do get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Mm. I enjoy looking at my Twitter feed, and because um, I specifically limit my Twitter to solely to industry colleagues, and so it's really useful. <laughs> it's it's right. a, you know I'm, I'm actually reading stuff from all of my colleagues in the game development industry 
and things that they're saying and, you know, techniques and um, uh, new games and reviews of things and also also audio and engineering stuff. And it's fantastic. But Facebook, no, I just don't really enjoy it. And I feel, though, I'm obliged to use it because, especially now coming to Sweden, Facebook is, is major here. It's probably, um, you know, it is the social network in Sweden. Right. Uh, Twitter is, is around, obviously, but it's just not as popular. And so things like events, things like um, also the game industry uh, the, in Sweden also makes more use of Facebook than it does Twitter. Mm. So, uh, you know, my colleagues here in Sweden as well, most the, the, the standard thing to do is to, you know, connect on Facebook and not so much Twitter here. So I kind of have to use it because... If I don't, then I'll be missing out on, you know, event invitations or, you know, right. the, the kind of word from Swedish colleagues that I currently get from my colleagues in other countries on Twitter, that's all on Facebook. Right. So I kind of have to use it. So Right. And that, well, that's, but you are getting value out of it, right? I mean, I felt similarly during my last year or two in Japan, where also in the area we were in Kansai in Japan, a lot of events are organized through Facebook. Mm. And events are a tricky one, you know, there are now alternative sites and apps being made to try and deal with the events thing on its own, mm. right? Like Eventbrite or Doorkeeper or things like that. There's another one, meetup.com, uh, which, uh, which is used in Sweden a little bit too. Right, mm. meetup.com, yeah. So those, those exist, and those are reasonable alternatives. But A, if you are organizing an event and you decide to use that instead of Facebook you're forcing everyone else to sign up to a new service. Right. And if those people have already got Facebook accounts, they probably feel like, I'd rather just use the account I've already got. Right. And B, if you're not organizing the event and the person who is is using Facebook, then you're sort of putting yourself outside the group of people who are, who are going to get that invitation. Exactly. You, you yeah. can still, I think, by default, access the event, unless they purposefully make it a private event, you can see the event and get all the information without being a member of Facebook. You can still browse the, the website for organizations and events, uh, but you can't mark yourself as, you know, participating, for example. Right. Yeah. Well, let's see, uh, uh, see how you go. I uh, thoroughly support your, uh, your decision. I think that probably because once you stop using it because your account is deactivated, mm. I don't think you'll miss it because if you're not using it anyway, and now you just, the difference is now you can't use it, but you wouldn't have been using it anyway, even if you could use it, probably the result will just be that you, uh, you know, you will have forgotten about it after a month. Oh yeah, that thing, I guess I should delete that now. <laughs> I expect so. I mean, I think a big part of the reason that my usage of Facebook has dropped a lot in the last year or two is that a couple of years ago when the last big Facebook controversy happened, which is that they were continuing to track you and maintain the connection to Facebook, even when you close the Facebook app. Right. When that happened, I deleted the Facebook app and I've only been using Safari to access Facebook since then. Mm. So I haven't actually had the Facebook app installed on my phone in, in a couple of years. Mm. And that already made a big difference, right? That was, that reduced my engagement with it quite a lot. Mm. And so this is just kind of the next step in that direction. Good luck. See how it goes. So, uh, this week is the, uh, annual game developers conference in san francisco it is indeed i was 
fairly aware of this, given that I live quite close to San Francisco. <laughs> right. Uh, otherwise known as GDC. And uh, how many times have you been to GDC? I've only been twice. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been. I went once in 2011. With, in fact, I've only been to GDC once, which was in 2011 uh, when I went mm. as as part of Vite. Last year, I went up a couple of times when it was on to meet friends who were visiting, mm. but I wasn't actually there for the conference. I just went in the evening. Right. Yeah, I think I've been to GDC four times. Wow. And it's great. GDC is great. GDC is great. It's I think it's it's the best conference, the best the best part of the year in the games industry. I know a lot of other people get excited about E3 and mm. and Tokyo Game Show and things like that, but GDC is is the most interesting, I think. Yeah, it's very uh inspiring too. Now, you always come back from GDC feeling, you know, sort of really uh ready to, you know, get back into the trenches and, you know, get some stuff done. Definitely. But the um one thing that I've always noticed going to GDC it highlights for me one of the aspects that, uh, that I really, really like about game development, and that is the sense of camaraderie and the sense of union and uh, community amongst game developers. Mm. And it's it's quite unique. You know, I think, um, uh, I mean, I've only had experience in, you know, uh, language consulting and uh, industrial design and graphic design before. So those are the only industries that I know. However, in in my experience with those industries, for example, industrial design, it's highly secretive, which means it's sort of very, very competitive. And so when you meet other industrial designers, you don't really talk about your craft. Right. You, know, you, you don't really talk about what you're doing You don't, you don't because all of that is very, very um, confidential and you don't want anybody to get the upper hand on your company or what you're doing. Right. Well, I mean, the games industry does have a bit of that nature to it as well right there's a lot of there's a difference you've got to keep until you announce it you've got to keep it very secret there's a lot of non-disclosure agreements whenever you go anywhere like yeah. if you just go to have an interview or say hello to a friend working in a company yeah you know, of course when uh, where publicity is concerned of course yes but there is a uh, there is a difference and it's very very palpable when you go to gdc because you get the sense that you know if there's there's no no case of rivals you know there's when if your company releases a really good game mm. and your friend plays it or, or some your acquaintance plays it mm. you know they're going to be really happy because it's a really great game and <laughs> everybody's sort of just really there to enjoy games which is obvious of course because it's game industry but right. you know i think because a large proportion of people who get into game development simply start off as fans of games and players and consumers themselves, mm. everybody has a common love of good games, basically. And so if people in other companies are making good games, then nobody is hesitant to acknowledge that. And um, that enthusiasm that you feel just for you know good quality games and games as a, as a true art form, mm. you really, really sense that at GDC and everybody's kind of... Uh, uh, eager and open and you know everybody's uh sharing what they've been doing uh, you know up, up to the the boundaries of what confidentiality especially with publicity what that allows but you know gdc itself the conference is full of really interesting lectures given by just you know regular average game developers not necessarily all just celebrities in the field but you know some upcoming people as well will give you some very interesting right. talks with some great techniques and tools and yeah. 
uh, of course, the um, the artistic side, and within that, uh, game audio is uh, is a massively enthusiastic, thriving little sub community inside game the game community itself, mm. because uh, you know, game audio is a it's like being the bass player in a band. <laughs> you know, there's rarely rarely more than one of you in your team, right? And uh, you don't really have anybody to talk to about what you do. And uh, like being the bass player in the band, you know, you're there and people appreciate you being there and doing what you do very well. But it's kind of like, you know, oh, yeah, good job with the music, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that that's that's it. You know, it's not like you, you have somebody that you could sort of, you know, get some, wow, you know, this, this music's fantastic. I love what you did down there on the bottom end around 60 hertz. You know, that peak right there was just perfect. You know, maybe you could think about, you know, uh, narrowing the cue band there to get more of a tighter focus. And, right. you know, you don't really uh, have a chance to talk to anybody else about that when you're uh, in audio. So game audio people really love talking to each other and getting to know each other. And uh, the, the the tool of choice there is Twitter. So game the game or GDC game audio GDC. I think it is just the hashtag. Mm. And uh, when you're at GDC, you know you just post something there, and there'll always be somebody around you can meet up with or chat to. Or yeah. Anyway, so GDC is wonderful, and it's uh, it's I'm I'm a little bit sad not to be there. I'm actually not there at the moment because uh, my team is uh, currently a few weeks away from having our game. Hopefully, Goldmaster. <laughs> oh, Hopefully. very exciting! So, right now is the uh, the absolute peak of busyness. Of course, never too busy for a uh, for a uh, casual chat with Danny over Station Thirteen. Of course, that's of course. But, uh, Do you want to pitch your game? Do you want to put a link to it in the show notes or anything like that? It seems that you know make it worthwhile. Next episode, yes, not uh, uh, not this one because it hasn't actually been officially announced yet. But uh, oh, I see. The okay. Official announcement is at the start of April. Okay. And uh, so, yes, that will be in about two weeks' time. Oh, very exciting. Tune in next time for secret, top secret Vito Backroom game. Yeah, actually, actually, I uh, have another business trip coming up. Oh, yeah? That is to uh, uh, Boston. I'm going to be going to Boston in two weeks, oh. two and a half weeks. Of course, we won't miss the uh, Station 13 uh, broadcast, of course, but... Um, yeah, I'm going to be heading over to Boston to an, e- an event, uh, part of PAX. Oh, exciting. For the promotion of our game, so that's going to be oh, cool. exciting. So you'll be showing it there, if anybody's going to be at PAX East. Yeah, uh, we'll be showing it at a, uh, a demo of the game at a, an Oculus event called Game Days at PAX. Oh, exciting. You're, you're sort of letting the cat out of the bag a little bit there, but... Well, I mean, I think, that, yeah, I think I've, I might have mentioned already before that uh, we're making a, an Oculus VR game, so that that much is uh, completely okay. uh, completely public. So that's fine. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Anyway, so GDC, it's great. Sad not to be there, but uh, you're kind of there. I'm well. I'm close, but I don't think I'm going to make it up this year. I did actually get a a message from friend of the show and previous commenter Cigar, who is around. Uh, and I, I'd like to meet him, but I, don't, I just don't think I'm going to be able to make it up there this week because I'm quite busy. Mm. So it's a shame. It's only on once a year, and it's so close. But San Francisco is just far enough away that it's kind of annoying <laughs> to get to. Right. 
Yeah. So, yeah, speaking of um, the game that we've been working on, uh, so the last um, few weeks I've been really hard at the uh, the audio for the game, the music and the sound effects. Mm. I'm using uh, two pieces of my favorite, two pieces of software for most of the production. One is uh, Renoise, which is a tracker DAW, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. which I uh, have been using for all the music, which has been just great. I mean, it's just fits like a comfy, comfy old slipper right now. It is, everything is... Uh, so quick and efficient for me in in Renoise. Now, the other piece of software uh, leads into our next topic, which I wanted to uh, talk to you about, mm. uh, and that is Reaper. Now, Reaper is a DAW, uh, horizontally scrolling, traditional DAW, mm. and I had mentioned it before, but uh, the angle for today's discussion is a little bit different. So Reaper is uh, the work of a developer called Justin Frankel. Uh-huh. And Justin Frankel is the uh, original creator of, do you know? No. Nope. Winamp. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, cool. So, oh, Winamp. Remember that. Yeah. So what do you think when you think Winamp? I think it really kicks the llamas' ass. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what everyone thinks when they think Winamp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and obviously the skinning. Right, right. The skinning was a big part of, of Winamp. Yeah, so Reaper is uh, Justin Frankel's DAW, and um, as I had mentioned before, it's uh, it's an incredible piece of work. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, it's the Swiss Army knife of audio tools. It can do absolutely everything. Mm. It tends to divide people. People either really love it or they really hate it, and I'll talk about why people hate it in a moment. But um, they really love it. Uh, because uh, it's highly configurable. Basically, pretty much anything about the the program can be changed. So if you don't like Mm. this keyboard shortcut or if you want to make a custom workflow that does this very, very quickly or, you know, if you find yourself doing certain actions, you can very, very easily create your own icons and toolbars and, you know, uh, set up uh, macros and shortcuts and basically... uh, um, the, the program can bend and flex to whatever needs that are pressed on it. Mm. And uh, it's fantastic for, um, you know, post-production and sound effects creation and music, of course, recording, pretty much everything. So one of the um, – well, there's a few reasons why people don't like Reaper. People who don't like Reaper, um, uh, the last reason is relevant to the discussion, but – People don't like it because it has no workflow because you have to decide one for yourself. Mm. So really, you know, you just sit down in front of it. I think I might make some sound effects now. No, it's not really that easy with Reaper. You you actually sort of, you, you need to have an established workflow or you need to un- have an idea of how you're going to be working in order to get the most out of it. Mm. Otherwise, you just find yourself lost in, you know, needless clicking and, and inefficient uh, processes. Right. Once you do something enough, then you you kind of work out, okay, well, in order to do that, I should do this, then this, then this. Mm. And that's when Reaper really becomes powerful because you can set up everything so that it's very comfortable to do things exactly the way you want them. Mm. Uh, but if you're not um, – either you're not that familiar with it, you're just starting with it, or uh, you just sort of want something that's more spontaneous that you can just sit in front of and, and just you know slap down the ideas and see where you get – uh, Reaper is not the right choice. So the second reason that people don't like it mm. is the way that it looks. Mm. And this is <laughs> this is really kind of ironic for a program that you can change absolutely everything about. Mm. 
you can skin Reaper very, very easily. And there are loads and loads of skins on the internet for Reaper in, in the true classic tradition of Justin Frankel software, <laughs> like Winamp. Right. You can make it look like absolutely anything you want. Oh, yeah. Look, I've tried so to know what you were talking about. I tried to load up some screenshots of Reaper so I could decide for myself whether I liked the way it looked or not. And they're all different. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> totally different. I have no idea what the default skin looks like. Right, right. So um, it can look like absolutely anything. And so the uh, the default skin is pretty ugly. And Justin's kind of um, idea there is that, well, you know, he, he it's almost like he wants to he wants to encourage the users to find their own workflow, mm. find their own appearance, mm. make this program into your own, and you know, make it into what you want it to be, rather than mm. me deciding how you should be using my software. You should decide how you want to use my software, and I'll make it able to accommodate any any appearance or any workflow. Mm. So that's the the basic philosophy behind the software. But it raises some interesting questions. One of, the, one of those interesting questions is what happens when you leave workflow up to a user to decide? Mm. And is the user going to be the best person to know what an efficient workflow is? Right. And that's a very fascinating question because it also heads us into the direction of uh, UX design, which is user experience design. Yep which really is a very, very new field of design, probably the last 10, 15 years, I guess, maybe a little bit shorter than that, perhaps, Yeah. where all of a sudden now, you know, software doesn't just have to look good, but it has to be a good experience, <laughs> you know. Right. And I mean, I think that's, you know, that's not all of a sudden, right? That's That's always been the desire of people who make software, but considering that, that as a distinct idea is a relatively new thing mm, right so with in the case of reaper the ux is ridiculously bad i mean it's horrible <laughs> because there is no ux because you know you work that out yourself right and you create your own ux what it looks like how it is to use you know what functions you want where you decide that for yourself on the other hand, you know, you take most other DAWs like Logic or Ableton Live or Pro Tools or, you know, any any of the other big or Cubase, of course. And with those, they're much more traditional where they have, you know, a department of people whose job it is to figure out the UX of their software. So to a certain extent, those software will dictate to you how you should use them. Mm. Reaper is the work of, I think, three developers and they don't have a UX department and it shows <laughs> – and uh, uh, it, it's almost analogous to um, open source software. You know, uh, some open source software uh, is is awful when it comes to UX, uh, fantastic when it comes to functionality. One that comes to mind is Inkscape. Have you ever used Inkscape? Um, yes, a long time ago, though. I mean, the last time I used Inkscape was when it was still quite buggy mm. and... I mean, it was so lacking in features. I, I believe that these days it has come closer to being, you know, a professional vector graphics tool. Mm. But back when I originally used it, it, it was, I think it was pre 1.0. Right. Okay. And it was, it was not very good. Yeah. I'm a long time user of Adobe Illustrator mm. uh, and it's my, um, my go-to, go-to tool for anything 
art-related. But uh, uh, interestingly, Inkscape often has features that come to Adobe Illustrator well before they ever come to, uh, well before Adobe ever gets to them. Mm. So Inkscape is often on the the bleeding edge of functionality, mm. but the interface is is very bad, and <laughs> and it's very difficult to use, uh, and that's the reason why I guess it. Uh, has failed to sort of gain the the popularity compared to Adobe Illustrator. Of course, there's compatibility um, issues there too because mm-hmm. when you work in a d- design office, you have a whole bunch of legacy data that's in a certain format. And, uh, you know, if you can't read that natively like Illustrator can, then, uh, you know, it's inconvenient. But anyway, uh, another example, of course, is Blender, right? the 3D art package. So Blender as well has uh, now they have uh, I, I believe because it's it, it is open source but it's a rather unusual type of open source where there's a foundation that is uh, has been set up to actually manage the development of Blender. I mean it's it's very similar to Firefox in that respect. Right. In that like like Firefox or like Mozilla, there was a commercial product first, and you know Netscape was a commercial browser that existed that eventually was not viable. Uh, so they released the source, and that grew into Mozilla and then Firefox. Right, right. Uh, and similarly, Blender, I think, has its origins in an actual commercial 3D modeling package. And then they, they made it open source after they'd already made something. Mm. Yeah, so Blender, I believe now they have um, uh, you know professional UX people who have come in to uh, help out with um, the, the workflow and the, mm-hmm. the ease of use of the, of the interface. But... Coming back to the, the question that I posed earlier, what do you think about uh, users deciding deciding user experience versus you know some designer kind of forcing his idea or her idea of a user experience on the user? Yeah, I mean, actually, before that, I just want to throw in a link, just because your talk about UI versus UX reminded me of my favorite Tumblr account, which is... To UI UX analogy. Oh, yes, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a there's a lot of classics on there, so I'll throw that in the show notes. I've just linked you to it as well. But in general, I tend to fall on the side of it's not the user's job to work out how they want to get that task done. Mm. So I tend to prefer more considered uh, interfaces where the designer of the interface has determined what they think is the most effective way to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve or determined some set of criteria by which to to judge that and uh, then, then built their program around that. And that could take, you know, a number of forms. For example, Blender which always had a reputation for having really bad UX and and being very difficult to use. Even back in the day before they took on UX designers and and started trying to make it a bit easier to use, they they did have a sort of governing principle. They weren't doing like what you describe Reaper as doing, which is giving you a sandbox to construct your own sort of 3D modeling engine. Mm they had a particular way that the program was designed and it was designed to be that by and large, you would always have one hand on the mouse and one hand on the keyboard. Mm. And that by mixing the commands and the the use between shortcut keys on the keyboard and movements with the mouse, 
you could do things very efficiently. Mm. And that was the that was the ideal behind Blender's user interface design. And a lot of people hated it. Mm. But the people who didn't hate it really liked it, mm. right? Right. Uh, because because it, it was it did have a sort of logical base to it. It wasn't slapdash and it wasn't a sort of a sandbox that the user had to create themselves. Mm. It didn't suit everyone, but for those that it did suit, it suited them quite well. I hope that the things they're doing now to make it easier to use don't sort of reverse some of those benefits that they had. Obviously, it'll be a, a compromise that they'll have to strike. But mm. if they end up just looking like any other 3D modeling tool, then then I guess the only advantage they've got at that point is is that they're free. Mm. Maybe, arguably, that's the only advantage they've ever had. But, mm. you know, anyway, in that sense, I feel like it's it's similar to something like Vim as a text editor, right? Right. Where Vim has a very, very particular way that expects you to work where it's modal. So by default, when you type, it doesn't put, like most text editors, when you when you press letters, those letters appear right, right. <laughs> on on the screen, and it's, it's the next letters you type into your document. But the the default mode that that Vim is in is what's called command mode, where each letter on the keyboard actually does something. Right, it 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 performs some command. Right, and if you want to en- enter text, you press I, which is the insert command which then puts you into insert mode and then you can type text until you're done and then you press escape to leave insert mode and return to command mode. Mm. Similarly to Blender, a lot of people hate that. that. That is seen as unintuitive and difficult to use. But for those people who have learned to use it, they really like it because, because in, in command mode, every key can potentially execute some command. Mm it can be incredibly efficient because you don't have to hold any modifier right. any modifier keys to do something right you you can just press these individual keys uh, to to perform actions mm. other than entering text extremely quickly unlike uh, a certain other legendary text editor unlike emacs and i think <laughs> emacs is much closer to uh, you've tripped me into the text editors conversation <laughs> <laughs> Emacs is much closer to the way you describe Reaper. Right. In that Emacs is is almost infinitely customizable, right? The the running joke about Vim and Emacs is that Vim is is an excellent text editor if only it ran on a good OS and and Emacs is an excellent OS if only it had a good text editor. Right. I thought the uh, <laughs> I thought the running joke was Emacs stands for Escape Meta Alt Control Shift. Right, yeah, <laughs> but it, actually, there's a lot of jokes. Right. <laughs> but but with Emacs, you you can do almost anything with it, right? It's extremely powerful, right? And it is almost like an operating system in the affordances that it gives you. You can run a terminal inside Emacs, and then run terminal programs inside that terminal window, right? I think I believe that uh, uh, for a certain amount of time. Uh, Emacs is so configurable that actually you were using Emacs set up like Vim. <laughs> right. Emacs has available for it a mode called Evil Mode. Right. Uh, which is, I think, Emacs Vi Layer or Emulation Vi Layer or something like that. It's, but obviously, it's Evil Mode. Right. Um, and and that will 
bring over the modal nature and a lot of the the keyboard shortcuts uh, from Vim. Well, not keyboard short. I mean, they're so fundamental to Vim, you can't really call them shortcuts anymore, right? They're mm. the fundamental commands, the whole way the thing works. Uh, and e- evil mode will, will bring over a lot of that. So, so in fact, that joke about uh, Vim having a good, o- or Vi having a good OS and Emacs having a good text editor, both of those things have been resolved now because Vim runs on everything and <laughs> Emacs has evil mode. <laughs> but but the other thing is that the defaults in Emacs are universally acknowledged to be pretty bad, uh, right? Even right. people who really like Emacs agree that Emacs, by default, that the keyboard shortcuts that it comes with out of the box and the affordances that it gives you out of the box are not very good. And so a big part of of learning to use Emacs is actually generating a configuration and finding the sort of appropriate set of plugins you want to use and creating out of it the text editor that, that fits you perfectly. Mm. And that's very similar to the way you describe Reaper work. Yeah, right? it's exactly the same, really. And it's almost, almost creatively stifling, almost. Mm. And I find that Reaper is fantastic to use when you're doing something that isn't necessarily that creative. Uh, and if you do need to do creative work in it, you really need to have an established workflow that you prefer yourself, and then you just sort of you know mold Reaper around that workflow. Mm. Whereas Renoise on the other end is totally on the other end of the spectrum, much like Vim, where the workflow is so strict mm. and that the way that you use it is so tightly dictated to you that that there is no freedom for make you know. Um, uh, you know, I don't really like having to do it this way. Well, you have no choice. You have to do it that way because that's the way the software works and that's, way it, that's the way it's been designed. Right. However, and this will be uh, interesting to hear if, if this is the same with Vim, uh, in Renoise, even though the workflow itself is very, very um, restrictive, the functionality is not, which means that you can find a way to do pretty much anything in Renoise even though the way that you're doing it may not be the most efficient way to get to the result that you want, mm. uh, but you can pretty much do anything. You just have to adhere to its way of doing things. So that actual process of figuring out how to do something mm. is actually a whole lot of fun. Right, <laughs> right. So is that the same with Vim? I mean, yes. Vim also has plugins, uh, which have sort of become increasingly powerful over time. For those not initiated in the world of programming text editors, I keep switching between using Vi and Vim as as terms, but Vi, V-I, is the original text editor from the 60s, and Vim is short for Vi Improved, and it was a port of, of Vi that was originally written for the Amiga, I think, or the Atari. That's right, them. that's right. Uh, and uh, And has grown to become the most commonly used version of Vim uh, that there is. And part of the reason it, it's become so popular is because it developed this plugin interface and people have written all sorts of amazing plugins that can do all sorts of amazing things. Mm. In that respect, it's it's moved a little bit closer to Emacs because you can customize it a bit more. Mm. But the most successful of those plugins embrace Vim for what it is. For example, a few years ago, I was programming a lot in a language called Clojure, which is a a Lisp dialect, or back onto dialects. Uh, (laughs) 
it's a it's a, it's a language in the in the Lisp family of programming languages, and Lisp has historically been much better supported in Emacs than in Vim. Mm. Emacs, in fact, uses a dialect of Lisp called Emacs Lisp as its scripting language. So right. all the Emacs plugins are written in Lisp, mm. and it was developed at a time when Lisp was very popular. And a part of the thing that's that's very good about the way Emacs works is that it's very easy to sort of run a live Lisp session inside the Emacs text editor. Mm. And so you can write a line of, of Lisp code and then press, I think it's Control and E or Control X, and it will execute that line in this sort of ambient Lisp environment that is running. Uh, and so you can have this very dynamic way of, of programming where you're sort of exploring the problem, right? You're, you're actually running, writing and running and executing the code all at the same time. Mm. And a lot of the early Clojure plugins for Vim attempted to replicate this experience by having a, a frame within the text editor, which is like a what's called a REPL, like a command line interface where you type in a Lisp command and then you press enter and it executes it and gives you the answer and you can type in another command. And it just didn't work very well because Vim doesn't really work like that. Emacs does much better with these sort of command line interfaces in panes. Mm. So, and then a guy called Tim Pope, who is very famous in the Vim community and has written countless uh, plugins, he started using Clojure and he decided to write a plugin for it. And uh, it's, called, it's called Fireplace. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. But his plugin worked differently to all the other plugins at the time because it really was written with an understanding of the way that Vim works. Oh, and Vim already has a sort of way that you input commands to Vim, mm. which is to press colon. You can, if you're in command mode, wherever you are on the screen, it doesn't matter. You can just press colon and it'll move you to the very bottom line where you've got a, a command line that you can enter a Vim command. Mm. And then you press enter and you get the response to that command or the Vim action happens or whatever, right? So he just extended that so that you could enter Lisp commands down there. Mm. And then the, the result would appear down there, just like it would with the Vim command. And it just felt so much more native to the way that, that Vim works. So that's kind of an example of where you, you can customize it. You can change the behavior and add behavior mm. that doesn't sort of natively exist. But that customization goes much better and feels much more natural to use if you do it with an understanding of the sort of philosophy behind Vim's design. Mm. And you, you embrace that and you make it work and fit with the rest of the Vim. Another example is Fugitive, which is the Git plugin for Vim. Mm. And uh, there's, there's a Git plugin for, for Emacs called Magit or Magit. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like magic, but with a T instead of a C. Uh, and and those are both very highly thought of, very well-respected plugins. But the Emacs Maggot one works in one way, and the Fugitive for Vim is is extremely different. And they both work in ways that are, are sort of built towards the philosophy of the respective environments. Mm. I guess the reason that you still use Vim... Mm. Um, over all of the other options that are that are out there for for programmers, has that anything to do with just being very very comfortable with this restrictive workflow that it has? Uh, well, I mean, to me, all the others feel restrictive. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is partly. I think it is 
in large part a, a sense of sort of comfort and muscle memory because I've been using Vim for God fourteen years now, mm. and so it, it really is under my like I don't think about it all that much, right? Mm. But I and I, the way that I think about editing text is I think informed by what Vim makes it easy to do. Mm. So, for example, Vim, Vim has shortcuts to change everything between the current pair of brackets or the current pair of braces, mm. for example. Right. And so I tend to almost see the text that makes up a program in these sort of chunks. Oh, I and I can see what would be very easy and quick to, you know, if I'm locate, if my cursor is currently located here, I can very quickly change this thing in the way that I want with these shortcuts mm. whereas i think if, you, if you're used to a more sort of visual style uh you're not dividing them into kind of logical almost semantic chunks like that but you're just looking at their location on the screen and saying well i'm just going to drag from here to mm. here and delete this text and write this other text right um so and and other things like vim makes it very easy to repeat a command right. so just pressing dot the full stop or period key will repeat whatever the last command is and so if I have a repetitive change that I want to make throughout a file, I may want to do two or three things in many places in the file, right? Mm. And I think if you weren't using a sort of Vim-like environment where repeating a command is really easy, you'd do those two or three things up here, and then you'd scroll down and do the same two or three things over here, mm. and so forth. But because Vim makes it very easy to repeat a single command... I tend to do the first change all the way through the file and then the second change all the way through and then the third change all the way through mm. because that's just a bit quicker, right? Mm. Uh, and I think that that's sort of the same thing we were talking about with language earlier, right? The, the way that I think has slightly been molded by the interface that I'm used to working with. Mm. In fact, I'm sure it's similar to you having used a tracker for your whole career, which is very different to the way that most people interact with music, right? Right. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Uh, it just you, you tend to think about it in a slightly different kind of way, just because you're so used to using a program with a kind of restrictive workflow that has forced you to get used to doing it in this way, and then eventually, after doing that enough that way, you attain a similar level of you know musical awareness mm. uh, that people using any other DAW would have. Uh, but you just come at it from a different direction because you're achieving it in a different way through the kind of uh, unusual functionality of this different style of program. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the one thing that jumped out to me, I haven't spent an awful lot of time with tracker software. I really want to. I, I kind of want to learn how to use it properly, and I've, I've got Renoise installed here because I'd, I'd like to get into it, but I haven't had time. But one thing that struck me very early on uh, that made me think, I, I felt like I was much more conscious of the the structure of the music that I was writing with Renoise. Mm. Because in particular, one, one thing in particular really sort of resulted in this, which was the fact that you can set a, a default step right. in Renoise. And then if you press a key, like a, a musical key, right, a note... It will enter that note, and by default, the cursor will jump by that amount forward. Right. And so if you want to sort of have, have a, a rhythm where, like, on every fourth step or whatever, it's going to play a C, mm. for example, 
uh, you can just hold down the C and it will just go down through the whole sort of pattern, filling that in at this regular interval, right? Right, right. And I felt like, like, again, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about because I've only used this for five minutes, but it really felt to me like that encourages you to think about the kind of structure of the way that your music is formed out of patterns rather than being this, I don't know, with a piano roll interface, I've kind of felt like I'm, I'm going through it. It's a similar sort of thing to what I described with doing the changes interleaved versus doing one change all the way through the file and then another change, right? It's like right. I'm just drawing the music out linearly from start to finish mm. with a piano roll interface. Whereas with the tracker, I felt like I was much more thinking about how, how is this actually structured and um, how do these things play together? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that Reaper has, uh, one thing, one danger mm. that Reaper has uh, which is potentially similar to Emacs and probably similar to Vim to a certain extent too, uh, is the temptation to tinker. Oh yeah, and yeah. and fiddle and basically uh, you know with because Reaper everything is so customizable. When you fall into a sort of creative rut where you mm. just sort of don't really have any ideas at that particular moment, mm. it's so so tempting to just sort of. Well, maybe it's not working out because this is inefficient and I need to find a way to make Reaper more efficient for the specific <laughs> thing that I'm doing. Yes. And then you then no, I don't really like what these sliders look like anymore, so you go onto the, you know, um Reaper's skinning website and start scrolling through all the countless skins that are available for it and then you start trying them out and then then you sort of think, oh well, I like this this theme, but that that's the wrong color there, and this this is so maybe I can go in and just change the theme myself, and mm. you know, it's just you before you know it, you've sort of wasted a good you know valuable thirty minutes to an hour just basically tinkering. Wasted? Is it really wasted? I'm, I've <laughs> I've lost days <laughs> to procrastinating with my Vim setup, but you know. Some people have Sudoku. Some people have the newspaper crossword. <laughs> I, that's actually that's that's not original. I've got a friend who who uses Emacs, and he uses a really old version of Emacs, and so none of the plugins work. Right. So whenever he <laughs> okay. wants to to use a new plugin, he has to download the source code to that plugin and go through right. the source code, like figuring out how you would have to change it to make it work with this old version <laughs> of Emacs. And that was exactly how he described it. He's like, well, it's my equivalent of Sudoku. Like, it's just a way that I sort of, a mild little exercise for the brain that I can use to pass the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's one thing. Uh, Renoise can be grouped together with uh, Ableton Live is is uh, another very popular DAW. Mm. Ableton Live also has very, very little that you can customize about it. And that's one of the reasons that many people don't like it. Uh, and it really forces you into workflow. And uh, Renoise is, mm. is similar in that regard. Mind you, Renoise actually can be scripted with Lua. Right. Is it? Can you script like the program, or is it more like you can create scripted effects? Uh, you can create scripted effects and actions, so you can make the program do things with Lua script. Oh, okay. And you can like create macros. Yeah, but you can also create uh, interfaces. Oh, right. Uh, so that sort of pop up interfaces to, to perform certain tasks. And there's a big repository of tools that people have written for Renoise. For example, you know, uh, this particular one, you, you pull it up and it will give you like this little pop up modal which allows you to sort your patterns by a certain kind of criteria or, right. you know, uh, things like that. So 
Yeah, it can actually be scripted like that. Oh, that's pretty powerful. That was one of the things I always really liked about Blender, actually. If you hover on any button or part of the interface in Blender, mm. as they'll, a tooltip comes up. And not only does it describe what the button does, yeah. but it also gives you the Python function that you would call right. to achieve what that button does. Essentially, gives you the Python function that that button calls. So if you're writing a script for blender and you think okay and you and you sort of know how to use blender and you're thinking well basically i wanted to do this and this and this mm. you can literally point at the buttons that you think you'd like it to do mm. and copy out the functions that it tells you <laughs> that's great so i think we're we're kind of um i'm not sure how we summarize this whether we are saying that ux is best left to to some professionals to decide for us or whether UX is uh, something that we should have the uh, the ease and ability to decide for ourselves, probably I guess the former. I well, <laughs> uh, I I think both, and it depends. And, <laughs> Good answer. And people will decide because you know Vim is very opinionated, mm. but it's also quite customizable. Right. Emacs is extremely customizable. Um, I think the the thing that these programs have in common is not that the designer has decided for you or that it's totally customizable by the user the axis for me is does it have a central philosophy a central way that it's supposed to work right an idea uh, around which is a built i see and i think that vim and emacs both do and that renoise does i don't know about reaper enough to know whether it does but I think just giving the user a complete sandbox with which they can create their own thing is perhaps at least doesn't interest me because I want to be given some guidance of how to use it. But to what extent you you sort of allow them to customize it not at all or to customize it quite a lot, but mm. still around this central idea depends. If, if, if that philosophy includes uh, the idea that this program should be an open sandbox that the user can create their own UX in. Mm. If, if that is the philosophy, then uh, definitely Reaper can fall into that group. Right. Because that, but it's kind of... Well, that, well okay, maybe this is a cop-out answer, but I think that is a fair enough philosophy. To, that's quite a similar philosophy to Emacs, I suppose. Right. Um, in that Emacs is sort of an environment with a text editor in it, almost. Right, right. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a completely valid philosophy and one that probably doesn't appeal to all that much to me personally. Mm. So I, I tend towards Vim over Emacs and I would probably tend towards something a bit more structured mm. over Reaper. Mm. But I completely respect uh, people who decide to use Emacs. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is a, a valid choice mm. in this world. 